Now we come here to chapter 2. And chapter 2, we have the judgment of the earth and of all nations. And you have that presented to you actually throughout this entire chapter and all the way down to the eighth verse of the third chapter. Now, will you note, as we begin here, God is a God who not only judged his own people, but God judges nations. And this chapter will bring that out in a great deal of detail. But before he does that, God is gracious, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. So he sends out a final call. You'd think that he'd reach the end of his patience. But now again, he says, "...gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation, not desired." Now, in the first three verses here, we have Zephaniah sending out God's last call to the nation to repent and to come to him. And he begins... Gather yourselves together. And it's, I think, just simply there to come together as a group of worshipers to plead with God to deliver them and that they might also forsake their sins. And he says, Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation, not desired. Now, their sin, of course, had caused God to bring judgment upon them. But it wasn't that he did not desire them. Actually, their sin had reached a very low stage, and they were actually dead to shame. Or they had no sense of decency at all. They were shameless in their conduct. And I think that we would say today... They had no sensitivity to sin whatsoever. They sinned with impunity. They would sin openly and actually boast of that. And we today as a nation have come that far. Someone said to me not long ago, they said, Dr. McGee, you talk as if America is sinning more today and is in a worse condition than it ever was before. Well, I don't mean to infer that at all. I mean to say this, however, that I believe that when I was growing up as a boy, there was just as much sin as there is today. But the sin was carried on back of the curtain or in the backyard or where it couldn't be seen. It was not flaunted before the world. It was not boasted of as it is today. In other words... It was not shameless sin, as it is at the present time. As we have said before, this very beautiful little girl on one of the talk programs on television, she boasted of the fact that she was living with a man, and she was not married to him. And others on the program congratulated her for her courage and her broad-mindedness. Well, may I say to you, Nobody congratulated her for her shameless sin because today sin is right out in the open. I don't think there's more sin. It's just out in the open today where you can see it. They sinned in my day, that's for sure. But it was done undercover. It was done secretly. And there was a sense of sorrow for sin. But we seem to have lost that today. Now, that was the problem with this nation here. And why that not desired? It's not because he didn't love them. It was because of their sin. They were repugnant. They were repulsive. You and I do not know how repulsive our sin is to God today. You and I spend very little time weeping over our sins today. Now, he tells them to come together as a people, as a body. They're to gather together. Now, he says in verse 2, "...before the decree bring forth, before the day pass like the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, 
before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. And it has a note of urgency here. Do this before God begins to move in judgment. Because when you pass over the line and God begins to move in judgment, you'll find out it's too late. Now, verse 3, he says, Seek the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, who have kept his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, there's always been a remnant of those people that were true to God. Just as today there's a remnant in the church. I doubt whether there are very few churches. I don't care how liberal they are, but what they're not some believers that are members of them. Now, I don't understand why they are there, and I don't propose to sit in judgment on them, but there is a remnant. God's always had a remnant in the world. And apparently here, he's speaking to these that are the remnant, that they should also be very careful of their lives, seek righteousness and seek meekness. Don't be lifted up by arrogance and by pride and self-sufficiency, for that was one of the great sins of the nation. And that's a danger, actually, among believers today. There is, as someone has put it, a pride of race, a pride of face, and pride of grace. Some people are proud that they've been saved by grace. They feel like that that's something for them to boast of, that they are the peculiar and particular pet of Almighty God because of that. My friend, we have nothing to glory in. Paul said that he had nothing to glory in, and believe me, if Paul didn't have anything to glory in, I'm sure none of us have. And there is a danger of being proud of the fact that we are God's child, and it ought to lead to meekness, by the way. And he says, here, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. That is the glorious, wonderful thing to be hidden in the cleft of the rock and to be covered by his wings and that God's children need to recognize, though they're not going through the great tribulation period, they may experience a great deal of judgment, a great deal of trouble, just as these people did. They didn't go through the great tribulation, the great day of the Lord, but they certainly were going through as I like to put it, the little tribulation. You talk about the great tribulation? Well, how about the little tribulation? All of us are going to have tribulation to a certain extent in this life. We're going to have trouble. I heard the story years ago of this woman who was a maid, and she was complaining about her troubles, and she apparently had quite a few of them. And the lady of the house rebuked her for complaining. And she says, when the good Lord sends me tribulation, I intend to tribulate. Well, I want to say to you, I agree with her. I believe that we ought to tribulate. And Paul says we groan within these bodies of ours. But that doesn't mean we're in the great tribulation period at all, nor is there a chance of us going through it. Now we come to a section beginning actually with verse 4. And it goes on down through verse 8 of chapter 3, where you have the judgment of the nations. And this reveals that God judges all the nations of this earth. You see, the God of the Bible is not a local deity. He's not one you put on a shelf. He's not one that is local or national. And that has been the great danger of the white race, of attempting to, as we have said, Christianize a people. And what we have done is we brought the gospel, but then we turn around and try to make them live as we live, and to adopt our customs and our method. Well, there are a lot of different people on top side of this earth today, and they're all people for whom Christ died. And our business is to get them to hear the gospel, get the Word of God to them, and then let them work their Christian life 
into their own customs and into their own patterns of life that they have, just as when the gospel is brought to our ancestors. I'm told that mine were pagans eating raw meat living in a cave. Well, the gospel did a great deal for them. And the early missionaries that came to my ancestors didn't try to make them like they were. And apparently they developed their own civilization. And we should do the same thing with others. Now, the God of the Bible is the God of this universe. He is the creator of mankind and of the universe. And he is the redeemer of mankind. Now, notice, he's going to judge these other nations, not just his own people, and he judges other nations for sin. You see, God has put up certain standards that have become worldwide. They have been written into the Ten Commandments. God gave them to Moses because all nations have a sense of right and wrong. Now, they may vary on what is right and what's wrong. A missionary was telling me about a tribe that he had worked in out in the South Seas, I guess off the coast of Asia, not very far. And they were headhunters. They had been cannibals. Now, he said they had a high sense of honesty. He said that you could take your pocketbook with your money in it and put it down in the center of the tribe where they dwelt. And you could leave it there for a week. Nobody would touch it. They had a high sense of honesty. But he said, of course, they didn't mind eating their mother-in-law for dinner. They'd have her for dinner, and you never know just exactly what they meant when they said they had their mother-in-law for dinner, whether she came over to eat with them or whether they ate her. But you see, they had a high sense of honesty. And that is something I don't think you'd be able to do in this country today you leave your pocketbook for a moment. lady told me that left her pocketbook in a department store, left it on the counter. She turned around. And then when she turned back, in less than a minute, the pocketbook was gone and no trace of it anywhere. But, of course, the thief wasn't going to have his mother-in-law for dinner that evening. You see, standards apparently vary. But God has given to the nations of the world a certain standard. And I think that you find them in all of the nations of the earth. No nation could be a civilized nation that didn't recognize some of these. Now, when they depart from the living and true God, then they go into the deepest kind of paganism and heathenism and reach a place where God gives them up, as we have seen. Now, will you notice... He begins his judgment of the nations. Verse 4, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Now you see there mentioned here four of the cities of the Philistines. Now they are going to be judged. Now somebody says, well, why didn't they mention Gath? Because that was a prominent place. Well, at this time, Gath was pretty much under the control of the southern kingdom. But these four cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron, are to be judged. And he says, Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. Now, it's interesting, Gaza is forsaken today. Ashkelon is a desolation. There is a place called Ashkelon, but it's not over the ruins of the old one. The old one is right down by the sea. And I've been there. The ruins of the temple of Dagon are there. And then we're told they shall drive out Ashdod at noonday. Now, Ashdod was driven out. And the interesting thing, they did it at noonday. Now, in that land, those people always take off at noontime. That is, they have what is called south of the border a siesta. In some places in South America, you couldn't get into a store from 12 to 2. You're just wasting your time if you want to go shopping because nothing will be open. But you could get into that store at 9 o'clock at night. 
They take off a siesta in the heat of the day. Here's Ashdod, and it gets pretty warm there, though it's by the sea. It gets very warm there in summer, and it will be destroyed. They'll drive them out at noonday. In other words, they take them off guard. Now, Ashdod was completely obliterated. Israel has built their apartment after apartment, and they also have a port there today, one that they've made. It's one of the principal ports now. They've recently put an oil refinery there. But in that day, it was absolutely cleaned off, and no ruins there at all. And Ekron, it says, shall be rooted up. Well, it was rooted up. It was removed. And now he says, verse 5, "'Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast.'" All these places are along the seacoast. "'The nation of the Cherethites.'" And some of these would call them Cherethites. And may I say to you that I'm not sure that you could argue with either pronunciation, because generally it's Cherethites. But what about the word church? And that's a C-H, and you don't call it Kirch. However, they do call it in Scotland the Kirk, and it means the same thing. The nation of the Carathites. Now, the Carathites were people that actually came from the island of Crete, and they evidently were Philistines. The word Philistine actually means an emigrant, somebody that emigrated to that country. And that, by the way, ought to answer the question that some people have raised, the liberal especially, what right did Israel have to drive out the Philistines? That was their native land. It was not the native land. Israel was there long before the Philistines were there, actually. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in that land, and their offspring were in that land, then went down to the land of Egypt. And in that interval... The Philistines, that means emigrants, came into that country. Now, they are to be judged. He says, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And by the way, when was the last time you saw a Philistine? They've disappeared. And the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and foals for flocks. And that took place and existed for actually over a thousand years, almost 1,900 years. Now, verse 7, "...and the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed there. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening, for the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity." Now, verse 9, he moves over from the west to the east, and the nations over there that were contiguous to the land of Judah. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the children of Ammon like Gomorrah, even the possession of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Now, I've been in a few countries, and the poorest country that I've ever been in is the modern nation, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And it occupies the land of Moab and the land of the Ammonites. In fact, the capital over there is Ammon. And you just don't find it any more desolate than it is there. All has been fulfilled in the past. Now, verse 10, "...this shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts." They are judged for their pride. And pride is the way the devil sinned at the beginning, as you know. Now, let me continue to move on here. "...the Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the coasts of the nations. Now, God is going to judge the nations of the world because they've ignored him. They've not recognized him. When they knew him, they glorified him not as God, but they became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened, 
and they began to worship the creature rather than the Creator. And that's the reason God will judge them. Now, verse 12, "...ye Ethiopians also, ye shall be slain by my sword." Well, Ethiopia is in Africa. You see, this is a worldwide judgment. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Now, Ethiopia is in the south. But now we move to the north, and Assyria is to be judged. At this time, they were making quite a splash in the world. And will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. And that's the way it is today. The modern city of Mosul is across the river from it, and it's a miserable place, so I'm told. But Nineveh, all of that area, is still a desolation. Now, God says, verse 14, "...and flocks shall lie down in the midst of her, all the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the porcupine," that's a hedgehog, I'm told, "...shall lodge in the upper lintels of it, their voice shall sing in the windows." Desolation shall be in the capitals, for he shall uncover the cedar work. In other words, their buildings are to be torn down. Now, verse 15, This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there's none beside me. How is she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss, wag his hand. Why, they'll kiss in the sense that it will be a sort of an explosive expletive that comes from a person who is surprised. Why, I thought Assyria and Nineveh, these were great cities up here, the great nation, and just look at it in desolation and ruin. They hiss. The breath is just blown out of them, as it were. And he'll just shake his hand back and forth, as being absolutely stupefied to see what's taken place. God's judgment of the nations. Now, God judged nations in the past, and God judges nations today. The Lord Jesus says he's going to judge nations in the future. And God today, as we saw in the last book in Habakkuk, that God was moving in that day in a way that the prophet never suspected. And my friend, God is moving in the nations of the world. He has judged them in the past. He will judge them in the future. Now, friends, we come to the last chapter in Zephaniah, chapter 3. And the first eight verses, we are dealing with judgment. And I suppose by now many of you are tired of listening to Zephaniah talk about the harsh, the extreme, the unmitigating judgment of God upon his people. This is probably the strongest language that you have in the Scripture. And these first eight verses in the third chapter, I just don't think you'll find anything any stronger until you come to the language that the Lord Jesus used. And if you want to check that, uh, read the 23rd chapter of Matthew in connection with this chapter here. And you will see that the Lord Jesus even topped Zephaniah in the extreme language of judgment that is giving. It is blood-curdling, if you please. Now, here he returns back to the city of Jerusalem in speaking of judgment. That We saw in chapter 2 that the judgment of God is worldwide, it's global in its extent, and it includes every nation on top side of the earth. Now we find that God returns to the judgment that is coming upon his people, and he's very specific here, and he reveals that the light that a person has will determine the extent of the judgment. In other words, privilege creates responsibility, and your responsibility is measured by the 
privilege that you have as a pastor, I would always put it like this. I would say that I would rather be a hottentot in the darkest part of Africa than to be sitting in a Bible-believing church today and hear the gospel and do nothing about it. I won't argue about the hottentot in Africa, and yet I have some very strong convictions in that connection, but that's not what we're talking about now. I do know what God will do with the person of privilege who has had the opportunity of hearing the Word of God and has turned his back upon it. Now, will you listen to this very extreme language? Because you just couldn't have anything more extreme than what we have here. And it's judgment on Jerusalem. And as we have put it in our notes, judgment is in ratio to her privilege. Now, will you listen? Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Now, Jerusalem was the city in which the temple was. The priests were there. The scribes had the word of God. Why, when wise men came from the east, they had no problem in telling you where the Messiah was to be born. They just didn't manifest any interest in checking up on the wise men to see if they had some valid information. They knew the letter of the law, but that's all that they knew. They did not know the author of the book, and they were far from it. Now, God's condemnation is on this basis. He says that the city is filthy and polluted. You see, this matter of pollution is not something that is new today. Pollution here is not physical. Actually, the pollution is not on the outside of man, it's on the inside of man. And the thing that's causing the pollution today on the outside is because man is polluted on the inside and filthy, that is, before God, he's not right. Now, when a man gets right with God, he's not going to dump his garbage on another man's property. And he's not going to fill a lovely babbling brook with the filth. If you want to know who it is that is polluting this earth that you and I are living on, it's the godless ones that are doing it was quite interesting here in Southern California several years ago. Down at one of the beach towns, there was a meeting of the hippies, the godless crowd. And they got in a pasture down there and had a meeting. And it was a protest meeting. And you know what it was on? Pollution, you see. They were decrying the pollution of the big factories with their smokestacks and pouring out all of the dregs and all of the waste material from the factory. And very candidly, I agree with them, that's a terrible thing to do. But the interesting thing is, after they had their protest meeting, the city down there spent $2,000 cleaning up that pasture that those that were protesting pollution had polluted. May I say to you that today pollution is on the inside. And when you're godless and wrong with God, you are certainly going to pollute this earth that we live on. Man today is actually wrecking this earth that we live on. Now, that's God's condemnation, actually, of the city of Jerusalem. And this was a privileged city. It was a city that had glorious and wonderful opportunities. But it's also a picture of this city. It's a picture of mankind. And you find that was Paul's verdict over in the third chapter of Romans when he said in verse 16, "...destruction and misery are in their ways." What a picture of mankind. Mankind has always left a 
pile of tin cans and rubbish everywhere he goes on the earth today. What a picture of man. Now, why did he single out this city? Well, this city was a privileged city. This city had the temple of God. It had the Word of God. And therefore, its judgment will be harsher than that of any others. And he calls it not only a filthy and polluted, but he calls it an oppressing city. Well, it is an oppressing city because of the fact that it did not regard the rights, especially of the poor. It did not consider them. It oppressed the poor. And that is something else that I think is so hypocritical in our government. And we're not talking politics now, nor are we speaking of any one party. It's true of the whole structure that you have in Washington today. They're constantly coming up with some program to help the poor. And the interesting thing is, it's always some rich senator that's doing this, or some rich politician in Washington that comes up with a plan to help the poor. Well, to begin with, they don't know how we feel. They don't know our hardships. Those men have never experienced it. And always... It's not a plan to help the poor. It helps some bureaucrat, but it doesn't help the poor. So far, the poor have not been helped, and I don't think that they will be helped by any of the plans that men bring up because of the fact that most of these today recognize that you have to tax the middle-class people today for any program and I'll be honest with you, I sort of wish I could move out of the middle class, either up or down, one or the other, because of the fact that the middle class is making it possible for the upper class to take our money and help the poor class, the lower class today. And I personally would like to move in one of the other brackets. It would be more comfortable to be there today. And God said he would judge this city for that. And then he's not through. He spells it out. She obeyed not the voice. Now, she was disobedient to God. In other words, this city had heard the voice of God, but had been disobedient to it. She received not correction. Now, God had sent judgment. 185,000 Assyrians outside the walls of Jerusalem scared the living daylights out of these people. And they were frightened beyond measure. And you would think, well, now, we'll learn a lesson from this. We have been partially judged, but God let the judgment pass over, so now we'll turn to God. But they didn't do that. I think that today there are so many Christians that we suffer, and we never learn why God permits us to. He never lets anything happen to his own unless there's a purpose back of it. And therefore... This city is like many of us, received not correction, did not learn the lesson. She trusted not in the Lord, no trust in him at all, looked to something else. When Israel celebrated her 20th anniversary, there was the motto, science will bring peace to this land. Well, friend, the Bible says the Messiah is the Prince of Peace and he's the only one, but they don't trust him. They trust science. And after their 20th anniversary, believe me, Israel got into hot water. Science did not bring peace to that land, and we haven't brought it either today. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. And today, men are not running to God. They're running from God as fast as they possibly can. What a picture this is of this city. Now, he's still not through. He says, her princess within her are roaring lions. Now, he's talking about the leadership. And you have to talk about the leadership of any nation or any city. These men, when they're running for office, they always tell us they're going to think about us and they're going to help us. They're going to do something for us. And so far, nobody's ever done anything as best I can tell, either from the city level or from the state level or from the national level. Why? Because her princess within her, they're roaring lions. 
or they make a big noise. Her judges are evening wolves. We have another meaning for a wolf today, but I'm not sure but what maybe the Lord included that in here also. But they are evening wolves. In other words, they were willing to work day and night for the people, no, for themselves. They gnaw not the bones till tomorrow. In other words, they are willing to get all they can. And frankly, I will be greatly relieved myself when many of these men that asked for our vote and went into office and promised to help us, and they didn't help us, but they sure did well because when they retired from office... They certainly were well-to-do. And that, my friend, applies to a whole lot of folk that we're talking about. That's the thing that God judges, friends. That's the kind of a nation like ours today that has had the Word of God and then to have these same things said to Jerusalem that could apply to us today. If God spoke out of heaven, he'd have to say this concerning us today. Now, will you notice, he says, her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Now, they're light. That doesn't mean they give light. That means that they don't really give the Word of God. They give a little smattering of psychology with a few Scripture verses put over it like a sugar-covered pill, and that's the sort of thing that's being dished out. They don't talk much about judgment, you see, and coming as sinners to Christ. Her prophets are light, and they're treacherous persons. Racketeers, religious racketeers. Again, let me suggest you read the 23rd of Matthew and see if God has changed. The Lord Jesus denounced religious rulers there. I'm reading now from the fourth verse of the third chapter of Zephaniah. He says here, her priests have polluted the sanctuary. Now, again, this is a terrible thing. How have they polluted the sanctuary? They have caused the world outside to lose respect for that which was sacred. By their lives, they brought upon the temple, upon the sanctuary, this sort of thing. It took place in Samuel's day, when old Eli was priest and Samuel was brought up there, men no longer had respect for religion. And today, many decry the fact that the church has lost its influence. Well, I decry it, but very frankly, I do not think that the church deserves the respect of the outside world when we cannot present and do not present before the world a church that is holy, a church that is living for God today. Now, will you notice they have done violence to the law? In other words, they did not interpret it accurately. In fact, they did violence to it by omitting teaching the Word of God. And the law here, of course, means the total Word of God. Verse 5, "...the just Lord is in the midst of her. He will not do iniquity." God was not going to do evil. And the minute that his people do evil and God does nothing, it looks as if God approves that sort of thing. God says that he intends to move in judgment. He will not do iniquity. God will not. This is verse 5. Every morning doth he bring his justice to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. The unjust just continue on in sin and no shame at all that it is public knowledge. Now, we come verse 6 through 8. You have here the picture of the great tribulation that is coming in the future, the great day of the Lord that he's talked about. And now he moves from the city of Jerusalem to talk about the nations of the world in the last days. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste, that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, that there is no inhabitant. It's been my privilege to walk through the ruins of great civilizations of the past. And I walked through the ruins of Ostia, the playground of the Romans, 
just 15 miles from Rome, but not very well known. It will become later as Rome is developing it and become a tourist attraction. Here is where Rome lived it up. This was the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. And it's difficult when you stand in the ruins of that city, in that street there, and you see the stones of that Roman road that are worn by chariot wheels that went over that. And to think that that street and the other streets were crowded and that that city at one time in its heyday was a great city. Well, God says, I'm going to make them desolate. And it's very difficult to believe that Los Angeles could become desolate, but it could. It's difficult to believe New York City could become desolate, but it could. And God says here, I said, surely thou wilt fear me, thou wilt receive instructions, so their dwelling should not be cut off. However, I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. In other words, the warnings of judgment, the little judgment that came, had no effect upon them. And that will bring down finally the great day of the Lord, the time of judgment that is coming upon this earth. And God says in verse 8, "...therefore wait upon me, saith the Lord." until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. This earth you and I living in is moving to a judgment. They don't believe it, but they're moving to judgment. And it is this judgment that will be initiated when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth. It begins with the great tribulation period and ends when he comes. Now, friends, the storm is over as far as this little book is concerned. This little book of Zephaniah opens with dark forebodings. It opens with rumblings of judgment that are ominous. And we have been through it. In fact, the last time when we took the first part of the third chapter here is judgment of the city of Jerusalem. It's almost frightening to read. And then it is frightening when you come to the last, and it's the picture of the great tribulation period, when he judges all nations and they will be brought up against Jerusalem in that last day. So that actually you have two kinds of judgment here. God's judgment of his own people, and that is always chastisement. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, he child trains, he disciplines. And then God must judge the unbelieving world, and that is the picture that is before us in this little book. And therefore, this little book is like a Florida hurricane, a Texas tornado, a Mississippi River flood, a Minnesota snowstorm, and a California earthquake all rolled together. And you would think when you read this that God hates his people and he hates mankind in general that he's vindictive, that he's cruel, that he's brutal, that he's unfeeling, and that he's unmoved. But the story that we told at the beginning is the story that illustrates this little book. It is the story of that man that took that little child in the darkness of the night and rushed her away from home. It looked like he was kidnapping her. And it was frightful when he turned her over to another man who plunged a knife into her innards. And my, that was a frightful thing. But when you know the whole story, it was the father that had a little girl, his own little precious girl, that had been having attacks of appendicitis. And so it was at night that he went in and picked her up and rushed her to the hospital and put her into the hands of the family physician and in tenderness, everything was done. But we find today that our great physician, he takes his own and he puts the ones he loves on the operating table 
And even in judgment, God is love, even when he's judging the unsaved. And when he's judging those that are his own, God is love. And we saw last time that this world in which we live, the final curtain is coming down. Someday man's little day will be over. And then judgment comes for lost mankind. But God will restore his children. And we're going to find out that what we endured down here was actually a blessing in disguise. Now, with that in mind, let's come to this. And as we do, let me put before you another little story again, one that actually happened of a boy that was in school, and he was away from home, and things got rough. The lessons were difficult, and he was homesick. And he wrote home, and he said, Dad, it's hard here. The assignments are too heavy, and the dormitory is too strict, and I'm homesick, and I want to come home. The father writes back a stern and severe letter, and he says, You stay on there. You study hard. You apply yourself. You get to work. And when the boy gets that letter from his dad, he says, I don't think my dad loves me anymore. My dad couldn't love me or he wouldn't want me to go through this torture that I'm going through here. But we got a heavenly father that tells us, you stay down there. You're in the college of life. I'm preparing a place for you. And I'm also preparing you for that place. And I'm preparing you down there in the world. Now, with that in mind, let's turn to this passage here, verse 9. For then will I turn to the peoples a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Now, God has this far-off purpose. This is called the teleological purpose of God. And we'll find it all through this section here because now we're in the light, no longer in the darkness of the judgment, no longer in the day of the Lord that begins at night. Now the sun has arisen and light is broken upon mankind. For then, he says, will I turn to the peoples a pure language. Now when he says here a pure language, he doesn't mean that everybody's going to speak Hebrew. A great many people think that's it. And he's not going to turn them to some other language, that is, maybe some unknown language, and that everybody will speak that. The pure language that he's talking about here is not what some of us Texans thought. We thought it was going to be the Texas accent. Many of you people that have not agreed with my accent and you found it rather distasteful, I thought for a while that you were going to have to get uh, accustomed to it because that's what everybody would be speaking in heaven. But honestly, it doesn't mean that at all. The pure language means exactly what it says. The language will be pure. There'll be no blasphemy heard. There'll be nothing that's vile and vulgar. There will be nothing that will be repulsive. The language will be that. We had a neighbor one time. She was a very big-hearted woman in many ways, and she was unsaved. And she had not only a mean tongue, she had the vilest tongue that I think that I've ever heard. And actually, it was offensive to people in the neighborhood to hear her lose her temper at times, and you could hear her throughout the entire neighborhood. And it was very distasteful, so much so that some wanted to report her. Well, in heaven, friends, there'll be nobody to report because it's going to be just exactly what this says. A pure language will be pure in thought, word, and deed there. And that is the thing that he mentions here. And they'll call upon the name of the Lord and they'll serve him with one consent. There'll be no rebellion against God in that day. Heaven, friends, is going to be a really a nice neighborhood to live in. 
going to be a glorious place. You're going to have some good neighbors there. Now, verse 10, "...from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my disperse, shall bring mine offering." Now again, here is a verse of Scripture that has been variously translated or interpreted, and they come up with all sorts of interpretations that the ark is down in Ethiopia and that it's going to be brought up to Jerusalem at this time. Well, I don't think that that is the thing that he has in mind here at all. It does mean that Ethiopia is a nation will enter the millennial kingdom. I believe that is the thing that is important for us to see. And their offering, of course, will be the offering that Christ made. And there are many myths, and in fact, there is a tribe down in Abyssinia or Ethiopia today that claim that they are Semitic. And they use the term, it's sort of like the word Philistine, that means immigrants. And they claim they can trace their origin back to Israel, that they are Israelites. Well, I think that is probably true. But I think we are reading a great deal here into this that doesn't belong here at all. And I think we just let it stand in its plain wording here. Now he goes on to say, verse 11, "...in that day shalt thou not be ashamed of all thy doings, in which thou hast transgressed against me." Now he's talking to his own. We have seen that one of the things that God was judging them for was that there was no shame in the vile acts and their gross immorality. They were not ashamed of it. It's like the sins that were committed... When I was a boy, they were always done in secret. Now they're done right out in the open today. But God's people will never reach the place where they can be satisfied in sin. If you can live in sin, you can be sure of one thing, you're not a child of God. If you can be happy and live in sin, you're not a child of God. The prodigal son was never happy in the pig pen. And he had to say, since he was a son of the father, I'm going to go home to my father. Not many wasn't a pig. Pigs love pig pens, but sons don't love pig pens. They want to go to the father's house because they got the nature of the father. Now, he makes that very clear here. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, in which thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee those who rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty in my holy mountain. This is the day when the meek shall inherit the earth. They're not doing very well today with it, by the way. The other crowd has it now. Verse 12, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. When the Babylonians took Israel into captivity, there were about three deputations of slaves taken. But they never took all of them. They left the poor and the afflicted, the cripple and all that sort of thing, never took them with them. And you can imagine how they felt. It was terrible to go into Babylonian captivity and become a slave, but it was actually worse to be left behind. And God says here, I intend to take care of the afflicted and the poor. And if you'll notice all the way through Scripture, we've called attention to it before, the Lord always mentions the fact that he intends someday to see that the poor get an honest deal, that they will be treated right. And the only one in the world today who has a program for the poor is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are poor and needy, he's the one to go to. He can help you. And he's the only one that can. Now we read in verse 13, it says, "...the remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity." That is the picture of the remnant. God's always had a remnant. And there will be this very large remnant in the millennium. "...they'll not speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. 
for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now, will you look at this verse with me for just a moment? First of all, when he says that the day's coming when they won't do these things, that would seem to indicate that they did those things. Even God's people indulged in sin, but not permanently. They can't, as we've said, they can't live in it. They may get their feet dirty. They may get down in the pig pen. They just won't stay in the pig pen. That's all. Now he says, the day will come when none shall make them afraid. Now with that verse in mind and saying that all of this has reference to the day when God puts them back in the land and gives them the land, are you prepared to say that what is happening and has happened in that land today is a fulfillment of prophecy? None shall make them afraid? Well, they haven't had a moment that they haven't been frightened ever since they've been in that land. And that is their picture. Now in verse 14, and here you come to the day when the kingdom is going to be set up on the earth by the king. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. The Lord Jesus has now come to the earth, and evil has been put down. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover this earth like the waters cover the sea. Now he says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. But Jerusalem is afraid even today. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. In other words, be busy for the Lord. Now we come to this marvelous 17th verse. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Now, God has a purpose. And he goes through the night, the night of judgment, in order to bring us into the light of a new day. And he does all of this, that the day might come when he can rest in his love. Now, God loves you today, and he loves me. I don't know about you, but I doubt very seriously whether God could rest in his love for Vernon McGee. He could say, well, look, he's not perfected yet. He seems so immature. He seems so filled with false. He's apt to digress. He's apt to detour. At any moment, God can't rest in his love today, friends. But the day is coming when we'll be in his likeness, and when we're in his likeness, after he's put us on the operating table, why, he's going to bring us to himself. What a wonderful and glorious picture this is. And it continues, I will gather those who are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that is lame, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they've been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all peoples of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Oh, this is the day of light that has come, and it'll be glorious for the nation Israel. It's going to be glorious for the church also, because God is putting us through many of us through the furnace, and he's putting us through trials. And I think that one of the glorious things about heaven will not be the golden streets, and it won't be the gates of pearl, and it won't be the fact he's going to wipe away all tears. The glorious thing in heaven is going to be you and I are going to thank him 
for every trial we had and every burden that he put upon us. I close with this wonderful little poem. Out from the mine and the darkness, out from the damp and the mold, out from the fiery furnace cometh each grain of gold, crushed into atoms and leveled down to the umless dust, with never a heart to pity, with never a hand to trust. Molten and hammered and beaten, seemeth it ne'er to be done? Oh, for such fiery trial, what hath the poor gold done? Oh, twere a mercy to leave it down in the damp and the mold. If this is the glory of living, then better to be dross than gold. Under the press and the roller, into the jaws of the mint, Stamped with the emblem of freedom, with never a flaw or a dent. Oh, what a joy, the refining, out of the damp and the mold, and stamped with the glorious image, oh, beautiful coin of gold. Someday, when you and I are in the presence of our Savior, we'll thank Him for every burden, every trial, every heartache. We will thank him for dealing with us as a wise father deals with his children. And we'll thank him for the dark side of his love. Oh, my friend, this book has a tremendous message for us today, the dark side of love. Now, we have a little book. That's the book we're offering this month, The Dark Side of Love. And it's for those that have part with us in our program, and we'd like to send you a copy of course. So until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.